Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Avatar Returns. I'm your host, Paul Smith of the Gobbledy Geek Podcast, and joining me, as always, are... Merrick Sipple. And I'm Arlo Wiley. And each week, we discuss two to four episodes of the Nickelodeon animated series Avatar The Last Airbender and its sequel series The Legend of Korra. Eric and I have seen both series before, but this is Arlo's first trip to the world of Avatar, so there will be spoilers, but only up to up through the episodes that we're discussing tonight. Um, and tonight we hit the halfway point uh, in The Legend of Korra Book 1, and the action heats up in more ways than one, which may or may not be a good thing. Uh, tonight we've got chapters uh, 105, The Spirit of Competition, 106, and The Winner Is, and 107, The Aftermath. Uh, and we have... There's no time to fool around tonight. There's no pre-show banter. We're just going to get right into it. So, Arlo, you are our resident newbie. Uh, why don't you tell us your impressions of Chapter 105, The Spirit of Competition? At one point during the episode, I typed a note that was, in all caps, UGG, why is this happening? <laughs> the, the, the first note on my list right here is UGG, love triangles. <laughs> Um, I should clarify that I actually, I, I, I really enjoyed the episode. I mean, as far as these things go, it was really well done. Uh, but it is a cliche that in any sort of, you know, teen centric show, you have to have the love triangle and maybe it's just a combination of like age and regrettable life experience on my part, but I really, uh, uh, I've I've gotten past the stage where these kinds of things are appealing. At one point in my life, at one point in my life, I'm sure I would have been sucked into the uh, Mako Cora Bolin love triangle, but uh, now is not that time. But again, it was it was a fun episode of the show. I I had a good time watching it. It was just one of those inevitable things that had to happen, I guess. This was this was definitely more of a a love quadrangle. Let's be yeah, that's be true. Here. That's true. And I hate these things like more than anything. It's like my least favorite things in shows. And I really remember hating this the first time through. I have to say that it didn't bother me as much this time. And I think the two reasons it didn't bother me as much were one, it's it, the worst of it is over in an episode. Right. Sure. Like this does not get dragged out and. I like that it's all about direct feelings with each other. Like it's like a lot of times love triangles on shows play out with a lot of simmering bullshit over many, 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 many episodes. And this, they like pretty directly tell each other how they feel. And in fact, it's people not dealing well with those admissions as opposed to brooding silence and passive aggressive crap. So even though I'm not a fan of these plots, I actually appreciated this one more this time because they handled it just well enough that it was it was easy to take, I guess, is the best way to put it. Definitely the best thing about it is the fact that, uh, uh, unlike just about any other show that ever does this, which I guess would be every other show, um, they, they appear to wrap up the bulk of it in a single episode. And I think that's why it's it's as enjoyable as it is because it's so compact. We don't have to wait for for any of the you know the emotional payoffs that usually take half a season to to get to. It's all over within you know twenty four minutes. Yeah, my the, my the full note actually. I said that my very first note is "ug love triangles." This is the full note: "ug love triangles, quadrangles, hexagons, whatever the fuck it is." Ug. That's what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, I, I agree with what Eric said. My memory of this was that it went on much longer. I, I was never a fan of this. The, the first time I watched the show, I was uh, my reaction was, ugh, love triangles. Um, but I remembered it being a much bigger deal than than this. I, I really, apparently I had forgotten just exactly how mm. fast um, book one of Korra goes. So do you it's, think it's that, speedy? Sorry, go ahead. Do you think the reason that you guys disliked it so much on first watch, just beyond the the general love triangle blondness, is that on Avatar, um, there was never really a love triangle. There was uh, maybe an equally annoying cliche in that uh, Avatar and or Avatar, geez, I called him Avatar, <laughs> Aang, Aang and Katara were obviously destined for each other from like the first episode, and we had to wait the entire series for that to happen, even if by the end of it we weren't entirely sure they should be together. Um, <laughs> Ouch. But there, there wasn't... An, well, you I, know what I mean. I, I know, I know. You you, a, you became a, a Katang. No, not a Katang. You were a, what were you? Zutara. Zutara, that was it. Zutara forever. Yeah. Um, but there was nothing like this on Avatar. Uh, Avatar didn't traffic in this kind of thing. And now we, we've we've leapt into Korra. And within like the first, this is like the fifth episode of the show. And it's right in your face. Yeah, I think that is a big part of why. And I think that also, um, I, th- I, mean, I think that's probably it. It was such a big change. Um, and I think there was the fear that it was going to take up more of the show than it did. And by the time it resolved, it was already a fear that, yeah, it looked like it had mostly resolved at the end of this episode, but that we were going to keep seeing it forever and ever and ever, which is what most shows do. And I'm not going to say it's completely gone because I can't remember what else we get with it. And there's some certainly some lingering worry of jealousy between Asami and and Korra by Bolin over the remaining episodes, but it's much different at those episodes forward. And I think that a lot of it was just like, oh my God, is this what the whole show is going to be? I mean, right. I mean, I, I will say <clears throat> super mild spoiler, I guess I will say that, you know, this, the love triangle stuff, it sort of resonates going forward, but it's never, it's, it's never like this. So, yeah, and I, you know, one thing I, I want to say in in uh, defense of this that I really like is that the episode's concern about the love triangle is actually a lot more about the maintenance of their friendship and their team yeah. than it is about who ends up with who. Right. Which I actually really like, like on on second viewing, that it really comes down to them rebuilding their friendship, which I thought was actually kind of cool. Yeah, the way it resolves is that you know they the the the, the team is in harmony once again and. Yeah, they win the game, and that's that's it. That's what takes care of it. Yeah. Um, and this whole thing is just another opportunity for us to see how unique Korra is from you know the way most uh, female leads, most uh, you know heroines are treated on shows. She's not the pretty princess. I mean, she, we do get the 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 really funny moment where she's kind of asking the the Airbender kids for romance advice. Which that could have gone terribly wrong. That could have played out as one of those, you know, uh, Iki turns out to to be the the romantic heart of the show or whatever, and she gives Korra the advice that she needs to figure this all out. Basically, they both give um, terrible but age appropriate and amusing romantic advice. Um, I I was particularly fond of Jinora's advice about riding a dragon into battle and burning the entire country, then throwing yourself in a volcano. 
Meanwhile, oh, I loved Icky's idea of romance. The best way to win a boy's heart is to brew a love potion of rainbows and sunsets that makes true lovers sprout wings and fly into a magical castle in the sky where they get married and eat clouds with spoons and use stars as ice cubes in their moonlight punch forever and ever and ever. <laughs> I wish that's how love worked. I wish you had delivered that in uh, Iki's voice. <laughs> I, I I actually really like that we all three of us are going to take like a different favorite thing out of this scene um, because actually what I really love about the scene is that it sets up what turns out to be an interesting character reveal. Yeah, yeah. Um, with um, and I can't think of um, Pema. 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 Um, when she gives information now that um, she won him, she won um, Tenzin over from someone else. She's a homewrecker, is what you're saying. She is. And then very soon after, I think the next episode or the episode after, we learn who. Yeah, it's it's next episode. It and it's a, so, it's a brilliant payoff. I love it. By the way, it's really weird. Um, so as we established a couple episodes ago, Maria Bamford, uh, the comedian Maria Bamford voices Pema. She has a new Netflix show called Lady Dynamite that is as like surreal and absurd and crazy as her stand-up. It's really weird now recognizing her voice as Pema because she's so fucking normal. <laughs> like, it's really weird. Well, who knows? You don't know. Maybe by the end That's of this true. show, she gets really wacky. I, I mean... can't wait for Pema to, to break the fourth wall. <laughs> uh, it'll be amazing when that happens. Um, oh, anyway, so I was saying, yeah, so uh, they use this uh, this cliche love triangle as a way of, of, again, demonstrating some of the ways that Cora is different from other like female leads. Um, aside from that little romantic advice, comedy relief there, we also, we just get to see that I like after watching this episode, I imagine Cora is the kind of girl who like on the playground, if she liked a boy, she would walk up and punch him. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I absolutely see that. <laughs> so I, I just, I love the fact that she, um, I mean, she kind of had to be, pointed in that direction but she's so she she's so direct she just walks up to him and says hey i really like you i think we're meant to be together um and i and i love her the date that she goes on with bolin it's beautiful they go to a water tribe restaurant yes and a little bit of research a little bit of research has uh shown me that 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 place that noodle shop it's called naruk's seaweed noodlery (laughs) and and it's located in the little water tribe district that is amazing. That is so oh, awesome. I love it. <laughs> and that also, and also the fact that they that uh, Cora says, "Oh, it's so authentic." Uh, that just that tells you that there's some really bad like water tribe shops on street corners around the city. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I th- there was a lot of like there, a lot more came out of this love triangle or love quadrangle nonsense than I thought would, and I I like that it plays out in the court. And I kind and I do love Cora's um, intense and amazing performance at the end of the last match to pull things out for everyone because she just whoops. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, I guess it's not a big reveal or anything. It's not. <laughs> I'm not being super insightful when I point out that the the three matches that they fight in this episode obviously kind of parallel the the group dynamic because of their love triangle. Uh, but like that first match, they totally dominated. Like that, that was a slaughter. Mm-hmm. Um, we we could get all meta and say that was the only all fem- all female group of uh, <coughs> pro benders that we've seen that got their asses handed to them by 
uh, the fire ferrets, but whatever. We That's not fair. We don't need to go there. Um, but yeah, and then so in the quarter, quarterfinals, they the only reason that they win, they barely win because Bolin's a freaking badass. He's a one-man bending battalion. Exactly. Um, yeah, now, I, I, that, this is the first time we saw that the, how the tiebreaker works, right? Right. In, which was pretty great. Yeah. I mean, okay, so um, uh, a little behind the scenes for people listening, uh, I found online someone had done up, or I don't know if this comes from an official book or if someone just made these, but I found online the quote-unquote official rules of pro bending because we've talked a little bit about one of the cool things about pro bending is just like trying to figure out how the rules work and when in these two episodes or in this and the next episode we find out about things like fouls uh um like hosing and that kind of stuff and i don't know i just it, this stuff is fascinating so uh i'm i'm happy to say that when i read these these sort of official rules that i found i think i'd kind of picked up on most of it just from watching the show so it's really good at being clear about the game you really understand how the rules of the game work. And I like that it feels like a real sport. Mm-hmm. And and as much as I love Harry Potter, like Quidditch never really feels like a real sport. Its rules are so strange. Yeah. That I, th- I think, I, I mean, that's part of the appeal of Quidditch that it's so absurd, but yeah, th- this absolutely makes sense as a sport. It has, it has both the like rational rules of sporting plus the way fouls work. Plus like the weird tiebreakers. Like it feels like the kind of sport that, started off fairly simple, and then as they ran into issues like, what if there's a tie? They came up with rules to add on to them, which is how most modern sports have worked. Yeah. So it has that feeling of like layered rules that have developed over time. Someone had a really good time making up this game. So my question then becomes, so if Quidditch is basically unplayable in the real world, yet colleges have Quidditch teams, will there be pro-bending teams in the colleges of the future. And as I was asking that question, I Googled pro bending in real life. People have done it. There you go. I, I, I love that. It. I love that. There are videos. Oh man. We're going to have to watch some of those. We will be watching these later <laughs> and putting them in the show notes. I'm sure. Sweet. Um, all right. Yeah. So what else do we have? In- oh, I want, I've, I wanted to point out that uh, Tano, the, the, the anime stereotype, pale, wiry, terrible hair guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Super, super anime. Um, is voiced by uh, Rami Malek. Uh, really? Yeah, of Mr. Robot fame. Wow. I thought that I was... I had no idea. It's amazing. I don't recognize his voice at all, but I just looked at the, the voice credits, and that's who it is. So. By the way, if you're wondering, I'm sort of clicking through one of these pro bending videos right now so I, I i'm not i haven't given it given it its full due yet it mostly looks like really complicated uh dodgeball yeah i was wondering if that, <laughs> that's what it was gonna end up being. just people, are the earthbenders basically doing ultimate frisbee uh no they're all they're all just like dodgeballs earthbenders should use um uh, frisbees that, that's a perfect call eric I'm, I'm ashamed that they didn't do that you know what this means during the next uh gobble con or deli con or whatever it becomes <laughs> we're gonna have to do this we are playing pro bending oh jesus that's a terrible idea that is a terrible idea it's amazing because none of us know uh any healers i'll even make you cook a burger first 
That's how amazing this is going to oh, be. Oh, man. What is wrong with you? I, again, I will say none of us know any healers. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that's me trying to set up the fact that we, we uh, discover Korra learned healing from Katara. Yes. So that's a thing that's still out there. That was great. I love that reveal. I was actually wondering, like, did, I actually couldn't remember. Like, did Katara, learn, uh, did Katara teach Korra healing? And I was really excited when that came through that she had. And I like uh, that when she starts trying to heal Bolin at first, he goes, haven't you hurt me enough, woman? Yes. <laughs> Bolin is great. Everything about Bolin is great. Yeah, Bolin I, is great. And, and, and um, is this, this is the episode, yeah, where him and Pabu go and eat themselves into oblivion. Yes. And, Pabu, and Pabu, like, waddles out on yes. his stomach. <laughs> yes. That was a great visual gag. You, you know what's great about that? Not only... Uh, okay, so I wanted to call out Bolin's uh, tragedy face because it was, I mean, it's tragic. It's poor Bolin. When Bolin cries, the whole the audience cries, right? That's how it works. But goddamn, it was funny <laughs> when uh, when he had his heart broken and his face just like sagged into just tears and snot and drool like in the space of a couple seconds. Um, and actually, in fact, I that is not only was the, the his, his face amazing. <laughs> just to watch. It's actually another thing I liked about how they handled this. Most things would have gone for anger. Yeah. And I like that his response was just like basically like abject sadness. Yeah. Like that we never get that response from like a guy walking in on the person he's into and another guy. Like it's always going to be like anger. And I liked that it was sobbing. Like I really – I actually really appreciated that was his reaction. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that goes down in this episode that – you know, some people might write off as it feels rushed because they basically they're cramming an entire love triangle subplot into a single episode. But I actually I really like it. Like, um, well, OK, just to stick with the noodle bar thing. I, I love the fact that Nickelodeon that they got around the whole fact that on a Nickelodeon show, you probably can't have people go into a bar and getting shit faced um, by having them go to a noodle bar and get noodle drunk. <laughs> and he ha- and he has a fucking noodle hangover later. Uh, that's that's just beautiful. I love that. Um, While we're on the subject of noodles, Flamio noodles, noodliest noodles in the United Republic. That's hard to that, say. That was Flamio noodles was one of my favorite things in these three episodes. Yeah. Um, and then uh, the I love the brothers' relationship. I love that they. You know, they have that moment where they're like, are we going to be okay? Yeah, of course we're going to be okay. We're brothers. Girls, seriously. So even though we all had like a knee-jerk reaction of of annoyance to the love triangle, they really do deal with it in a way that's not as obvious or cliche as it could have been. Like I said, for what it is, if they had to go this route, it's it's very well done. It's probably the the best it could have been done. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, and then there, and um, as a small detail, I think this is the episode where I at least I don't know if they revealed this or if I just noticed it that Mako cooks in the in their yeah. little attic room, which I love. He has like a, like a frying pan and he cooks for them. I just love that. He was angry cooking, but he was still cooking. It uh, it is kind of weird. I mean, okay, so Thumbs up to this episode. Uh, I like this episode a lot, but it is kind of a weird tonal shift. Um, for us, maybe not so much because we ended last week on um, the the revelation. Was that the was that the yeah yeah the revelation? And then um, which had a really no no it was the voice in the night. The voice in the night. Gets... Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, 
And that was a really like dark and, and traumatic moment to close on. And then this episode opens up and apparently the only like lasting effect from that uh, is that she's taken a leave of absence from Tarlock's task force. I mean, it's, yeah, it's not, it is, a, it is a, it's a big jump. It's a really big jump. Yeah. It's not really a big deal. Although I suppose if you watch those episodes, like right away, like back to back, it might be kind of jarring, but whatever. Yeah, this is, I still think this is the weakest of the three, but I actually even like it more talking about it now than I did watching it. I was surprised how much I didn't hate it, considering I was ready to be, like, tear this episode apart. <laughs> and I was surprised how much I didn't want to afterwards, and even talking about it. And, like, I actually really appreciate this episode more than more than I could have. Right on. Um, anything else, or you want to move on? Oh, let's let's talk about the next episode. I think it's hard not to. I can't I can't wait anymore. Uh, okay, Arlo, why don't you uh, why don't you tell us? And the winner is who's the winner? Who's the winner? Winner, Arlo. Who's the winner? Who's the winner? Yeah. Um, the winner is not really anyone. Bad oh, things happen. It's clearly Amon. Yeah, Amon. Amon does uh, come out with the victory in this one. Uh, yeah, bad things happen. Um, pro bending is a very corrupt sport. Right. Yeah. Uh, we learn that uh, the refs are definitely in the uh, pocket of the uh, the wolf bats, the the White Falls wolf bats, uh, and that is the least of the uh, fire ferrets' worries because Amon, uh, as he threatened to, uh, infiltrates the arena. Just disrupts the tournament and wreaks havoc, mm-hmm. and uh, declares the revolution has begun. So, I didn't we talk about this in an earlier episode about um, how, like at at the time, Amon was basically just sort of trying to stir up people in the city, and how is the rest of the world going to react? To... Well, well, yeah, and right before he says the revolution has begun, he says, we will equalize the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's what I'm saying. He, he He's now stepped it up. He's no longer pretending just to be like a, you know, a neighborhood watch guy or whatever. He's he set his sights on the rest of the world. And uh, he uses uh, phrases like cleanse them of their impurity. I told you last week, I was like, couldn't, yeah. we, couldn't we call this guy like a, 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 what did I say, like a racial purity guy or whatever? You're right, but I still am waiting for like the counter argument, like the, 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 the a person who like characters who actually want to fight for um, equality between the benders and the non-benders. Because I feel like they're being unfairly represented by this one uh, insane fascist. Well, that's actually something that I think is really interesting. Is that even now, the benders do not have. A reasonable answer. They're not doing anything to address the concerns that right. Amon is preying on. They're not doing anything. They're playing exactly into his hands by refusing to change things that obviously need to change. And if they had done that, if they had done things differently, would Amon even have this anger to tap into? Actually, we have um, like like one of our heroes. So Lynn is back. Lynn Beifong, chief of police, is back. We didn't. We haven't had her. We haven't seen very much of her. Uh, on the show up to this point, and she's back in a big way. Um, but, and it's a great scene when she bursts into the, the council meeting um, to actually take the avatar side and say, no, don't close, don't give in to Amon, don't close the, 
vending arena. Um, but just the way that whole conversation goes down, like she says something, I don't have her quote in front of me, but she says some things about how it's time, something like it's time for vendors in this city to stand up and, and, uh, you know, speak for themselves or something like that. And of course, Tenzin has the best response. Tenzin is clearly the, the moral center of the show because he, you know, makes the very valid point of we, we do not want to escalate this bender non-bender dispute into like open conflict. We need to be careful what we do here. But that uh, being said, I actually agree with uh, Lynn in that argument. I, I, I disagree with Tenzin. I, I'm, I agree with him in that you do not want to escalate the conflict. But the the note that I made here because. Uh, so Amon says he gives that he does like a Joker style thing where he breaks into the yeah. the uh, Republic City radio broadcast and says he wants to end pro bending, um, and so Tenzin and Tarlock are both arguing that they need to uh, shut down the tournament, just, just not have one this year. Cannot we cannot risk that. And I agree with uh, Mako, I agree with Cora, I agree with Lynn. In fact, the, the note that I made was, you can't let the terrorists win. Ah, like, there you go. Just, <laughs> just because Amon threatens that doesn't mean our first response should be to shut down the tournament. And Mako, I think, makes the correct argument that pro-bending provides one of the only opportunities for benders and non-benders to mingle, even even if it, I guess it is still a bending-centric uh, activity. Yeah, but you know what but, that you know what that statement made me think of for the very first time. That, uh, that? for for some reason, uh, I I just I'd been assuming I hadn't really thought about it, but in the back of my mind, I guess I had been assuming that the benders are the the athletes and everybody in the stands are non-benders. That's that's not that doesn't have to be true. That doesn't no. have to be true at all. It's a it's a mixed audience. So yeah. Um, and then as far as uh, you know, if the council had acquiesce to some of Amon's demands before it got to this point. I don't know. See, this is one of the things I'm, I'm really enjoying about Korra is how thorny its politics are because then, then I guess the question becomes, well, okay, so first I agree with them um, not shutting down the tournament. We see that it has a negative consequence. But then at the same time, I wonder, even if they had made some concessions, clearly it, they had already let it get to a point where Amon is the one making demands. And if all of a sudden you start uh, you know, changing things, then maybe he'll think that uh, – maybe that won't change his path. He'll think that, oh, I've already gotten them to do this. What else can I do? Like, like maybe he would be worse. So I don't know. I don't know what the uh, – they, they never should have let it go, uh, they never should have let it go this far. I mean, at this point, Amon basically has won either way because if they do shut it down, all of his followers now see him as winning. You know, like as soon right. as that happens, it's not even just what Amon thinks he's going to get done. Every single person who's a part of him and even people who are on the fence suddenly see the equalist side as dictating policy to New Republic City. So there was really no win unless they could have defended the, um, the tournament, which they obviously had no no capacity to do. Because they got absolutely demolished. Because there are portable chi blockers now. Right. But wait, let, okay, so let's work up to that. <laughs> um, uh, we, we need to talk about the, uh, the Tenzin reveal. Uh, we hinted at this, the, the whole Pema is a homewrecker thing. 
Oh yeah. This is where you that find comes out his out. former love. Yes. So not only were Tenzin and Lin uh, kids like growing up together, but uh, they they had a thing. They they had yep. a romance. And I there like is a... still bitterness left over from that way that fell apart. The I mean the great stuff that we get out of this. First of all, we find out that uh, cold-hearted Lin apparently loved Aang, got along famously <laughs> with Aang. Um, I I love the I love to picture little baby Lin Beifong like bouncing on Avatar Aang's knee or something. <laughs> um, uh, but also that uh, that Tenzin is really hung, really like. Uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like, he's really awkward about talking about this. I, I love his reaction when he finds out that Pema was the one that uh, revealed it. He's like, "Criminy, I'll have to have a word with her." <laughs> and then he he starts like trying to explain to Cora why it fell apart. We both had different goals in life. Why am I telling you about this? Yes, complete with like the string section uh, with the rising yeah. mu- rising like romantic music, and then it cuts, and he's like, "What? The- <laughs> this is none of your business." Yeah, I really like that. I really like that reveal. That's very interesting to me. And as always, I'm wondering what their celebrity couple name is. Uh, is it Linzen? Is it Tinlin? Mm-hmm. Those are the two I came up with. That's it, huh? Those are our choices. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not behind either of those. Clearly, they weren't meant to be. Ten Tenfong? No. <laughs> Tenfong. I like Tenfong. <laughs> oh great. man! All right. Um, and I so, do like Lin's observation about uh, Korra becoming the Avatar. I can't believe your sweet-tempered father was reincarnated into that girl. She's right. tough as nails. Right. Like that was great. And then Tenzin points out, you know, you guys would really, you'd probably get along. You have a lot in common. You'd get along if you would just give her a chance. Um, all right. So I guess let's get to it. The championship match. Uh, Which is the best wreck. win? What's that? The wolf bats win. The wolf, they because do. It's an absolute, it's an absolute disaster, and it's not their fault. It is. It is a farce. It is. It's the kind of match that fans of a team will complain about through the generations. <laughs> they used. Is, they used the, uh, partially inflated balls. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be years of complaining about this from every single fire ferrets fan. It's. It's a, it's awful. As a, as a NHL hockey fan, I really appreciated the bad refereeing, which is the NHL is notorious for when games start to matter, the penalty calling goes way down. Yeah. So I really I really felt the pain of the fire ferrets in this one. By the way, the ref was voiced by veteran voice actor and SpongeBob SquarePants Tom Kenny. Oh wow. I don't I, I don't this... think I'm sorry. Go ahead. I may have said this before. I'm not sure I said it on this show, but uh, the one San Diego Comic Con I've been to in my life in '08, the most one of the most vivid and surreal experiences I had during that Comic Con, I was sitting through a panel about some movie that it was clear no one, it was some animated movie no one on the panel was enthusiastic about. I don't even remember the name of the movie. It went nowhere. Um, Tom Kinney decided to spice things up. Uh, by telling really filthy jokes in SpongeBob's voice, and I just want to let everyone know how much that traumatized me. <laughs> that was, and you know, Comic Con is supposed to be a family-friendly place. No one follows that rule. I still was not prepared for that. <laughs> it that made you the man you are today. It's oh god, did it? 
Wow. <laughs> Thank you, Tom Kenny. Um, I don't. I can't remember if we've mentioned before. I. I don't remember noticing that. Um, Appa, Momo, Naga, Pabu, animal voice auteur D. Bradley Baker does the voice of. Uh... Oh crap! I just forgot. Tarlock. Tarlock. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Had we mentioned that I cannot that hear. I cannot hear. Harlock's name without thinking of Captain Harlock, which is a classic. Um, right. And in fact, there the Italian dub of Captain Harlock has this amazing theme song where they sing Capitano Harlock, and that's all I can think of. When I <laughs> is someone singing Capitano Harlock? That's all I ever hear every time I hear his voice. I'm sorry, I totally derailed that, but I couldn't, couldn't is, let that go past. What is Captain Harlock? It's like a he's a space pirate, basically. It's pretty is, amazing. Is this a TV show or? It, it, there's also been a movie. There's, it's one of those things that's been out a bunch of times. But he's like the most super emo like space pirate. He's got like a skull and crossbones shirt. He has an eye patch and like flowing hair that mostly covers his face. Yeah, you. And if you by, saw a picture of him. It's by Lazy Matsumoto, who is like a, a um, an, an epic god of anime and did the amazing Daft Punk anime movie. Interstellar five 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 five, the story of the secret star system. Oh my god, that's incredible! All right. <laughs> so, anyways, that is it's it's a classic. But anyways, that's what's in my head is the the Italian theme song for Captain. <laughs> that's that's anyways, oddly that, that's from my brain. To oddly you. specific. Wow. I'm um, gonna make that my ringtone. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's talk about the equalists in the crowd. Uh, I mean, is there anything about the the match that we want to talk about was there any interesting I mean, character and stuff it's it's a, it's a bullshit match yeah i don't even I, I can't even live in the moment of that match anymore it's all right well th- well then let's talk about <laughs> the uh let's talk about the equalists the slow motion reveal that there's a bunch of equalists in the crowd oh that's so good it, it's that was amazing a great reveal. um but i do want to point out something that uh as i've said the name equalists it a parallel has occurred to me so these gauntlets, these these the non-bender equivalent of uh, being a lightning bender, I guess, or whatever. Um, first of all, they're super cool because they've got that steampunk look. I just love the look of them. I think they're really cool looking. But this is basically the equivalent of introducing like firearms into it. So again, this is kind of like the noodle bar instead of a, an alcohol bar. This is a show where our our heroes on Nickelodeon probably aren't allowed to shoot each other with guns. So you introduce the firearm equivalent. You basically arm the people. And when you introduce firearms into uh, a society that's in conflict, that tends to create a sort of a seismic shift in the way things are going. And the reason this occurred to me is because in the, like in the old West, wasn't the cult, um, what the hell was it? The The cult, was it the 45? I don't remember. I don't remember what it was, uh, but the like one of the guns that was entered. I think it's the Colt forty-five. Uh, was called the Great Equalizer. Ooh. So, oh, so wow. I just I, I I wonder if this is all intentional. Like I wonder if that was in the writers' minds when they were doing all this. Me, the gloves just reminded me of Iron Man. <laughs> okay. You 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 small-minded. <laughs> What they they got the, the the glowing circle and they had, like the way they have to raise their their palms up. It's true. It's true. I um. It's, it's total a, it's, Stark tech. 
it, it's it's yes. If we did like if we did like Neil Gaiman um, sixteen fourteen or whatever it was, <laughs> but we did it with like as like a steampunk Marvel, then yes, it would absolutely be Stark Tech. Um, and I. I here we actually do find out it is from we'll, we'll talk about that next next yeah. episode but it is actually from this world tony stark but yeah um <laughs> uh, but um i i do love the gloves and i like the reveal of them and i especially like it because lynn is so confident that her metal benders are impervious to chi blockers mm-hmm. which they are but here comes something else and it's kind of terrifying yeah and it puts everyone off their guard and that those first few moments when they basically take out everyone of power in the arena is pretty pretty damn intense mm-hmm. it is yeah it's also uh we're also lucky that none of our heroes drowned in that in the pool after they were electrocuted i love how they all passed out but they passed out like floating face up <laughs> in the water also they get they get electrocuted in water shouldn't they be a little more i don't know partially dead it's, it all depends on the amount of electricity it doesn't matter whether you're in water or not it's, it's not a lethal dose of electricity either way. So okay. it's just that it's just that it's a crappy conductor, but it will conduct. And um, all right, so well, let's get to the fight because that's why <laughs> that's why we're really here. Who cares about pro bending? We're here for the the fight against Amon because, as is the case with just about every fight sequence in either show, but especially Korra, it's badass. Oh yeah, this fight's yeah. good. Everything about it, Korra rising out of the water. Mm-hmm to chase after him and then Lynn helping God, out. Goddamn Lynn. I oh. Lynn basically pulling off like a fastball special. Yes. Yes. For the end. Yeah. That was great. And, and honestly, Cora's fight with the Lieutenant, whatever, he doesn't even have a name. Yeah. How do you get Lance Hendrickson and not give that character a name? <laughs> um, but she fight. And that's a great fight. It was nice to see Cora take on him and actually kind of win the fight mm-hmm. uh, because he'd been pretty scary before. Yeah. This is the first time he, he has been taken out. Yeah. He, um, well, I guess, after... I guess she dazed him uh, before, but like that was, that was a lucky sucker punch of a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's also, <laughs> it's just interesting that, uh, to watch Cora fight, but she still doesn't have any airbending abilities. So, and also I was, I was reminded like when she was, when she's launching herself in the air with the water spout and then later, later as she's plummeting, potentially to her doom my first thought was well why don't you use your firebending to like jet your way out of there and i was like oh no that's clearly a an ability that only some people manage to to figure out and it might also have been because of the sozin's comet i don't know but yeah um what's your face uh zula had managed a little burst of it in the um right the boiling rock episode yeah yeah um but it is something you probably have to train at and um yeah but 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 really, and well, think, speaking of her falling, that's another what an amazing sequence that is, as she falls and Lynn dives down to catch her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Seriously, the 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 action on this show, I know I keep saying this, but it is just so next level. It is so good, and I love the action in Avatar. But every time we get into a fight in this, it's just it. What it is is it feels like they had the time to fine tune everything they had learned in Avatar, like everything they learned about how to do fight animation and that. They took it and just perfected all of it. And so you get these fights that are just, just eye-popping to watch and and well-built sequences and just amazing. Indeed. 
It's amazing. We're going to get uh, another one of those in this next episode. Do we have anything else for uh, for this one? And the winner is? I will say one moment that broke the spell of that sequence uh, was I, I liked the announcer announcing his own attack. And then he says, I am currently wetting my pants. And that was one joke too many. Oh, I liked it. That <laughs> took that bit too far. No, I, thought, I thought it was funny. And there's a, a subtle payoff, not for the wetting your pants thing, but the, a subtle payoff for his attack at the beginning of the next episode. Um, oh, hey. Uh, we didn't even mention Amon takes away Tano's bending. Right. Yeah. So we get a second example of him doing that. It never really stops being scary. Uh, I know. Watch him do that. I know. And then, and, and, then and, and once again, Tom. and once again, he, uh, like he had to fight his way to, uh, to uh, Tano, to take him yeah. out. So, so Tano was all, all right, come on, let's let's get to it. And water bends at him, and he like sidesteps it, and I don't. It shows that he's a badass, not just because he can take your bending away, but because apparently no one can touch him. And we also get a very brief, like, Aang flashback. Yeah, I was going to... In the midst of all this. I was like, we Which totally the second forgot. time we've seen this. We get a little more yeah. of it in this one. Mm-hmm. What, are you, what are you thinking of the Aang flashbacks, Arlo? Um, I, I'm hoping that it... Uh, I forget the name, but they had mentioned that he had faced a, a powerful opponent. Yakone. In Republic City at some point. Yacone, what was it? Yakone? Yakone. Yakone? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping it's that encounter and somehow that ties into the uh the 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 current situation they have with Amon. So I'm hoping we find out more about that. We got another look at Angry Aang. Mm-hmm. He didn't look very happy. I, adult Aang is so different. It's so weird seeing mm-hmm. like a like a just rage filled Aang is just very it's very um I don't want to say off putting because it's not bad, but it's it's jarring. It's very yeah. jarring to try to square who he had become with who he had last seen him as. Yeah. All right. Um, well, let's move on to the, the final episode, 107, The Aftermath. Arlo? Um, for me, the biggest takeaway from this episode was that uh, the Cabbage Merchant's yes. legacy is is a bad one. It's a dirty one. And so, so my question is, is that the original Cabbage Merchant that that is running the company? No, or that's is his, that like his... It's his son. Okay. It's his son. It's his son. Damn it. Ruined the... Ruined, ruined his, his father's legacy. But... Uh, why, and, uh, why? Do you believe? Do you believe all that evidence they found? I, I feel like well, the end of this episode true. implies that that evidence was planted. You're, you're right. You're absolutely right. But there is that... One, we get to see that there is a statue of the Cabbage Merchant and mm-hmm. who... Who deserved a statue more than that poor cabbage merchant? And then when uh, his son is being carried away from the the building, no, not my cabbage corp. Yes, oh that was God. that was brilliant. I, I as much as I never liked the cabbage merchant, I, that payoff in this of not my cabbage corp is <laughs> it was a, a delight. I will not lie. Uh. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. This entire series will have been worth it <laughs> just for that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I guess the rest of the episode was fine too. Yeah, I guess. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, uh, I like Tarlock's uh, press conference being the previously on. Yeah. Because the, uh, because Shinobi Shin or, or no, Sh- I don't remember what his name was. Anyways, the radio announcer is still uh, convalescing from being electrocuted. I imagine that, 
that that is that is a cool touch. Um, and I, I I'm actually of two minds about this episode. I really liked it, but at the same time, I don't know. I cannot put my finger on why it's not entirely sitting well with me that Asami's dad, uh, Hiroshi Sato, as Eric said, the Tony Stark of this world, that he is is a bad guy. I don't know. Maybe it just seems a little too convenient. Like they've just met Asami and they go to her dad's house. And then Cora immediately finds out he's a bad guy. Well, we, I, I mean, know. we, we've, we've had, we, we did get, um, Sato, um, a while ago. I mean, it was, I mean, granted, I know this is like a short season and everything's moving really fast, but that was like, it was a few episodes or, ago. Yeah. It was like, it was like episode three, wasn't it? When we got that. Yeah. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah, I, so. I suppose that's true. I just – I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure I can put my finger on why that reveal didn't entirely land for me. It makes perfect sense, and I don't think it's a bad reveal by any means, but it just didn't hit me maybe the way it, it should have. I, I think I like it because we've been actually getting – we've actually been hearing Asato without knowing about it since the beginning with the Satomobiles, and I, I like the idea that it is – um, that the progression of technology and industry uh, has very specifically made this equalist movement possible. Mm-hmm. And of course, the one of these people who is not a bender but has a great deal of uh, material power and wealth would become a backer of this kind of thing. So it really works for me. I think the one thing we didn't get, and I don't know how you would have revealed this earlier without it tipping your hand so much, is that his his wife had been killed by a firebender. By firebenders. <laughs> Yet again, I think that the equalists just need to start with the Fire Nation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have a kind of a big question I want to ask you guys. Are okay? Are the benders? The benders are obviously like the sort of the ruling class or whatever. They're they're very powerful, very influential. Are they the majority or are they just a minority with like superior skills that have sort of an imbalance of power or, or an imbalanced influence? Yeah, I think they're a minority yeah, with I've, a great deal of power. Yeah, I think they're right. powerful minorities. Yeah. Okay, that makes me okay. That sort of refocuses my feeling on the whole equalist movement because I don't know, maybe it was just, it's just because my mind immediately went to like when I see people, you know, protesting and I see there's a, you know, an, a, an uprising, a revolution. My first thought goes to, well, non-benders must be, you know, uh, a minority. They must be like a, a, a lower class, but I, I guess it makes sense that they would want to rebel. If, if they are the majority, I guess I can understand the point of view that, you know, uh, it's, it's sort of like uh, the, the, the first place my mind goes is to goddamn Batman v Superman. But I, I, I guess it is sort of like there's this, these very few, you know, power, incredibly powerful individuals who are running society. I, that's not a great thing. Well, this is this is very much a one percent, ninety nine percent kind of. Yeah, thing. yeah. So we, we need. This actually the... gets to economic inequality more than anything else. Right. Yeah. We need the Republic yeah. City Accords. Is that what you're saying? It, absolutely. Uh, so I, I guess if the benders are the one percent, I guess it's interesting that the that Hiroshi Sato, who would be in the the one percent of the ninety nine percent, is one of their chief opponents. 
Isn't I, I actually think this is really interesting and, and in a lot of ways kind of great, um, which is that it kind of speaks. This is you know again with the like Korra's gray areas that how often populist revolutions are led by people who have power but would like a little more power and less people in their way. Yeah, and that you have. I mean, we we've made Amon Trump comparisons before, but this kind of goes back to that where it's someone who basically has everything speaking as if they are a. Um, underrepresented and underpowered group of people, like they, if they are a member of that, and there is nothing holding Sato back. That by him, whether he's a bender or not, um, he certainly is not being. He's like one of the richest people in the city, so and, and thus probably the world. But he sees himself as part of this thing, and thus is obviously when this revolution completes. If anyone thinks anyone's going to benefit from it more than people like Sato, you're nuts. Because that's exactly how this kind of revolution that that is that is not is very populist demagogue led would actually go. And again, it's like it just complicates once again how you feel about where this is all going to go. It it also further muddies. Uh, like maybe we should check in with you again, Arlo, on where how what you think about Amon. It sort of muddies Amon's thing. Amon had early on claimed that you know he was doing this because the spirits had come to him. And given him this power and, and, you know, basically shown him the way. I mean, he talks about the fact that he has suffered greatly. He suffered loss at the hands of benders, firebenders in particular. Um, but it initially didn't sound like this was just a revenge plot. It sounded like he was a man. Uh, he was given a divine purpose, basically. I mean, I guess we still haven't found out if that's true but i think i I think i even said in the show my first response was like that's bullshit like he's just saying that to because that that's the thing you say to appeal to those people Mm -hmm. uh to 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 scare and intimidate people uh but yeah i i still am on the side of thinking that's bullshit but honestly having this see this is why i love doing this show and and i love talking about uh you know, works of art, especially ongoing stories like this, because this conversation that we're having is completely changing my idea of how, so I, I was uncomfortable. I think, uh, you know, with the last few weeks thinking of, you know, so last week we were talking about who in this situation are the oppressors and who is the oppressed. And I, and I do not think it's a black and white good versus evil situation, but I, looking at the conflict as like a 99% versus 1% thing really does make it, it makes more sense to me now. I don't, I'm not sure I have the same problems with it that I did before. Cool. So you're saying that as a, as a Sanders voter, you now get it. <laughs> <laughs> Sick burn. All right. Though, though, I guess you could say that the ninety-nine percent are still being portrayed as the villains, but it's the one percent of the ninety-nine percent, like Eric said. It's a, it's complicated. It's, I, I, and I like that. I like that it's not just like, um, we keep we keep saying things like this, and it sounds like we're taking we're we're making digs at Avatar. That's not the case. I, but I. I I, I do like the fact that unlike Avatar, where the Fire Nation was very clearly evil and no good, you have to stop and think about the Equalist movement because I think that's a worthy cause, but it's being led by very uh, corrupt individuals who are seeking power on their own terms. And I think that the good way of putting this is that 
I like that, you know, I think we're appreciating this in a way because it's very specifically because it's different than Avatar. And that's a big success of Korra that they don't try to retell the type of story in this type of way that Avatar would have done it. So part of, I think, what, we, what we're all reacting to, at least on one level, is that they are legitimately doing a different type of story. And thus, it feels distinct from Avatar. So it gets hard not to pretend like you're comparing it. But really, it's just that this is very rare for a sequel show to feel like it's of the same piece as the other thing, but to feel like its own show. And this definitely does. Yeah. So, okay. All right. All right. We've talked long enough without mentioning the mechas. We cannot go any further. Without <laughs> okay. I knew, I knew you'd be excited about that. This show has fucking mechas. <laughs> um, I guess, I guess now maybe this show has tipped its hand for why I love it so much, but, um, <laughs> I, well, I, hey, before I, before you go on, Eric, I want to I want to mention that uh, in the art of the animated series, I was reading through it earlier, and they they say I haven't gone back to find it, but they say that in the very first episode, "Welcome to Republic City," I guess in I think at the end of that episode, we saw uh, Amon in his like headquarters or whatever, like the lieutenant comes to say something to him. I guess on the ta- there were tables in that room, and there were actually blueprints laid out on the tables, and they were the mecha tanks. No way. That's that's what it says. So we need to go back and double check that. But that is super cool. <laughs> so all right, go ahead. I'm sorry. Geek out about the mecha tanks. No, I just I I I really love this. this is yet another great reveal for the show. First, because you have like the gloves, and they get this this clue to go and look in the basement or like a secret area in a in a um factory that Sato is not disclosing, and. I mean, I, I, I couldn't remember whether it was a trap or not, but it definitely felt like they were being set up, which, of course, they are. But it leads to this moment of them suddenly being surrounded by something that we have never seen in this world. And it's just, it, again, it's like an escalation of what the Equalists are up to. And suddenly, even, like, metal benders can't touch these things. And it feels totally justified. We've, we're getting there with this technology, but it's pretty scary, and it leads to... A people versus mecha battle, which I am a massive sucker for, and it helps that these mechas are are pretty damn cool. It's a great design, and they have cool powers. Yes. Um, once again, a fight sequence that I love. Big shock. Um, but since since you're talking about the the metal benders not being able to to do anything to them, I I like this reveal that metal benders they they do have a weakness. It's platinum, and the explanation for that is that the Platinum is is so pure; it's been refined to such a pure state that even you know even Toph wouldn't have been able to do anything with this. And if you remember back, um, I, I you know when Toph first learned how to metal bend, she it was revealed that uh, the whole reason nobody thought you could bend metal is because it was refined earth. Like all the impurities have been refined out of it, and then Toph just looked a little closer, I guess. So this is just the next step. This is. Platinum becomes like super metal that metal benders can't do anything to. I yeah. think Toph would have figured out a way. Oh, she would have. Of course she would. <laughs> Although, how awesome was it that Lynn has learned Toph's echolocation? Yeah, that was okay. That was so amazing. But let me let me give you a little. Let me take some of the joy out of that for you, shall I? <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> it's a beautiful it's... moment. I absolutely love it, and I love the fact that she like closes her eyes to do it. It's just, it's just great. 
Um, and at first I'm excited because like she lifts up her foot and, and you see her like metal bend the sole of her boot out of the way so she can put her foot on the ground. But uh, upon repeated viewing of this episode, it has dawned on me, what does that mean? She wears metal boots with no socks. <laughs> Which not only cannot possibly be comfortable, but can you imagine how much those boots fill up with sweat? Hey, she's a metal bender. They could both be perfectly molded to her feet and perhaps even porous. So you're saying she she metal bends a, a tap or a... a, a a drain into her boots. There's a bunghole in her boots. Is that what you're saying? Maybe, or, you know, maybe it's just like, Hey, my feet are getting sweaty. Let me open these up for a second and vent them out. <laughs> All right. That's, I'm just saying that she, she's a Bay funk. She's probably pretty clever. This is true. This is true. Speaking of uh, clever Bay fongs, um, So we get to see again, just like in the last episode where, uh, she shows us some of the cool things that metal bending cops can do. We get, uh, we get more of that here where the other cops are doing their whole Spider-Man thing with their, the cables and everything. But she pulls a Wolverine and uh, like yeah. launches herself at one of the techs and, and makes those giant blades on the back of her hands and just cuts her way through the, the windows of the tech that was of the mech. That was awesome. Very good. Very yeah, good. I was, I, I, I was super into this fight. I, I, I feel like I'm nowhere near as good as articulating why fight scenes work for me as you guys are. But yeah, I, this is one of my favorite fight sequences in this show so far. You, you know what's... <laughs> go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you know what's, what's extra special about this fight? Uh, with the exception of his one, uh, like right before he get, got zapped, right before Tenzin got zapped in the arena in the last episode, he threw one burst of air. Um, but with that exception, this is the first time that we get to see Tenzin uh, using airbending in an offensive way. Yeah. And he has a super cool wind wheel instead of like the air scooter or whatever that Ang used to use. He has this freaking awesome, like circle of air around him that he rides like a, I don't even know what, but that was awesome. Yeah, that was really cool. That was really cool. I, I did like seeing Tenzin in action, and I like that Tenzin's fighting style is not exactly like Aang's. Yeah, because he only it, has airbending. Yeah, yeah. So in his in his airbending style is is a little less. I, I want to say a little less like circular. Like it's a little more direct. Right. I feel like he he definitely has the style, but he is less um, less playful, I guess, in his fighting style mm-hmm. than Aang was. Which I really liked, um, and actually, this this um, this show continues to demonstrate really good comic relief with the um, uh, Bolin, Mako, and Asami wanting to get downstairs, and then the guard not letting them, mm-hmm. and leading to the wonderful moment of um, him sneezing fire, and then um, Earth tripping him back over it, and then Bolin like doing a WWE move. <laughs> Over the top of the earth thing and landing on the, the person. That was just an absolute delight. Yeah. Bolin is the best. And Although, I like when they're trying to, to get the our, our unconscious heroes um, out. Uh, Bolin has Tenzin draped over his shoulders and then is having a conversation with uh, Sato and using uh, Tenzin's like, unconscious, lifeless hands to... To, you know, as his own gestures. I, I actually missed that. That's amazing. Yeah, it's 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 pretty great. <laughs> um, 
I, I, so there's obviously a big emotional moment that closes out this fight, but I, is there anything else we want to talk about, about the fight specifically before we talk about the big, the big uh, moment? I, I, I liked earlier in the episode that Asama finally wins Korra over. Asami. Asam. What did I say? Asama. Asama. <laughs> okay. Which is, is is pretty close to a. We were talking about like not letting the terrorists win. Oh earlier. my gosh! Well, I don't know what just happened there. Okay. Um, Asami. I like that she finally won. Maybe I. W- I don't know what I was doing. Asami won wins Korra over by not by taking her out for a makeover or a girl or a shopping spree or whatever as Korra feared, but by taking her to a fucking racetrack. Yeah, and yeah. then I I like how the conflict between them. becomes not one of jealousy or pettiness like it could have on another show but becomes you know Cora finds out this really or suspects this really awful thing of her father uh and obviously that causes distress but then i do also like that asami sees that her father is doing something that she believes to be terrible and then when he extends the glove like uh like darth vader asking luke to join the dark side (laughs) um she she says no and she actually uh zaps her father with his own glove so it's so brilliant too because she she like very carefully walks up to take the glove giving him the impression that she's going to join him and giving that impression yeah giving them all that just so she can get her hands on one of those gloves absolutely brilliant yeah, Asami is wonderful. Yeah, how how did you see that scene? Like, were you, were you expecting her to to have that turn, or did you think she was going to turn out to be the femme fatale of the show? I didn't think she was going to. She seemed so genuinely like stricken and hurt by seeing her father do this that I didn't I didn't think for a second she was actually going to join the dark side but I also didn't anticipate her being uh, as badass as taking one of the gloves and zapping her own dad and we didn't even mention this but the lieutenant was there and she takes the lieutenant out yes yes lieutenant gets his ass handed to him in these episodes I know he looked like a badass in the first few episodes and now he's just getting slapped bitch slapped around left and right so um but it doesn't go go well because an awful lot of metal bending cops have been taken hostage. Yep. Leading to Lin Beifong basically being like, "I'm going to be a fucking vigilante." That's right. This yep. is this is her Batman moment. <laughs> There's been so many Batman moments on this show. This is. There's no one you want to be a Batman more than a Beifong. I'm 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 100 behind a Batman Beifong. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. I want that. Lin is. Lynn is pretty badass. I love Lynn. I have to say, like when we first met her, I wasn't a big fan because I don't think you're supposed to be. She's she's pretty shitty to Cora when they first meet. And you know, my, my impression was sort of like, wow, Toph was so cool. What happened to her daughter? Um, but now that we've gotten to know more about Lynn, to learn more about her and to see her in action, she's she I, I think I would go so far as to say she's one of my favorite characters on the show so far. This show does so well with the adult characters, which is another thing that I think makes it different from Avatar, where there were very few adult characters at all other than Iroh. Yeah. Um, and Iroh has a very specific purpose in that. But I love that the adult characters in this really have their own arcs that are separate from the main characters, even though they're intertwined. And so Lin Beifong has her own motivations and things that she wants to do. And even Tenzin does. And I think that's why Tenzin and, Be- and Lin are both two of my like favorite characters in the show because of that, because 
I mean, how rare is it to have a Nickelodeon show where there are legitimate adult characters that are leads next to your kids or teens? Yeah. The show is great. <laughs> so great. These were these was a good run of episodes. Things definitely um, sped up in this. Yeah. yeah. Things are not going well for the Benders at this point. Yeah, we've hit the. Uh, we're at the midpoint of the of the series, um, and the the stakes have been raised. Uh, as Tenzin said last episode, um, Republic City is at war, and. Now we've lost, I mean, I don't know how many metal benders we've lost, but we've lost a chunk of the law enforcement and Tarlock is, uh, making a push to, to, well, he was making a push to drive Lynn out of the, out of her, uh, position, but she stepped out of her position entirely anyways. So yeah. What's, uh, one last question, Arlo, what do you think is going on with Tarlock? Do you think he's like, he seemed pretty set on her there was that moment where he was like to, to lynn so do you personally guarantee that nothing is going to happen at the right at the arena uh is he just a, a shitty politician who's making a push for power or is there something else happening i was just going with him being like a like a careerist politician who yeah you know wants to manipulate others into getting him more power but I don't know. I would not be surprised if there were ulterior motives because he does seem like a douchebag. Well, I guess the thing is, is even as a career politician, given the situation, it you know it raises the question of what his motivations as a politician are. Like to get more power, yes, but to get more power to what end is right. is the question that I was asking myself at this point. Like, what is what is Tarlock's end game um, in his own mind? Like, what is he working towards? Because Certainly pushing out your best cop in the middle of a crisis is a risky move, um, even if you want power yourself. So, hey, so here's it's, a it's an interesting character for me. Here's a question. So what uh, are, are, the na- are the nations united now? Is that? Yes, or, more or less. I mean, they are their own nations, but. That's what this is. The United Republic is what they right. refer to this as. So it's I it's think basically, are... yeah, the United Republic is basically a fifth nation, I guess. It's like okay. the UN, more it, or less, right? I mean, that's kind right. of yeah. what, what, the, what the United Republic is. Yeah, I suppose that's okay. better. So, so each nation still has their own king? Yes. Or, or yeah, whatever they had. There's still a king fire lord. Or, or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe Tarlock wants to... He wants to... Well, I guess you can only do that. I don't know. Are they going to democratize uh, the uh, United Republic? Well, I mean, Instead of having it be like a, a, a lineage thing? Well, uh, I mean, it's the Republic itself. You mean the other nations? Right, right, right. It's an interesting question. Hey, I forgot to ask. Um, what the hell does Tarlock have over those other three members of the council? Like... Does they the, are just terrible council members. Does he have pictures of them, like, in compromising positions or something? Because anytime he fucking barks, man, they just, they raise their hands in favor of whatever the hell it is he wants. He's a very, he's a very persuasive asshole. <laughs> it's the ponytails. It's the ponytails that do it. Water Tribe just has the coolest clothing. I mean, how do you say no? People dressed that awesome, <laughs> but Good one question. of the one of those other one of those three is a waterbender. 
Or a, do a we water tribe. do we do we know whether is Tarlock southern or northern? Do we know? He said he's northern. He's northern. He's, okay. He he introduced himself as the representative of the northern water tribe. Ah, so the other one is a southern water tribe representative. Yeah. Okay. It still blows my mind that well, no, never mind, never mind. We've already had this discussion, and I realized that I was jumping to conclusions. I was going to say it still blows my mind that there's no non-bender on the council, but yep, yep. We've already played this game. Okay, so uh, anything else? Any any final thoughts about any of these? None, other than to say this was another really solid stretch of episodes. Uh, Asami has a lion turtle fountain in her pool. I just wanted to point that out. I completely missed that. That's really cool. <laughs> um, Eric, anything else? No, no, I'm I'm just excited. I mean, honestly, like I I can't wait to watch the next group of episodes. Um, Arlo, have you looked, like, do you know, we're not hiding these, obviously, since we've got our calendar set up with what <laughs> the episodes are, but, like, have you looked at episode titles? What What do you think is coming? Do you want to make any predictions going oh, into gosh. the back half? Uh, sure, yeah, I know I have looked at uh, the episode titles, but uh, let's see, so the next episode, so, so which episodes are we discussing next week? How many are we discussing? Three. Next three. The next three, okay, so the next episode... Uh, let's see. So the last one we discussed tonight was the aftermath. The next episode is when extremes meet. Uh, I assume this is uh, just as the NFL had to reckon with the XFL. I imagine pro bending has to deal with its extreme counterpart uh, out of the past, which I assume is a loose remake of the 1947 Jacques Turner film noir. Of the same. And then uh, turning the tides which uh, I would imagine, you know, water, tides, there will be bending. Good. <laughs> wow. You That's Paul that. Thomas Anderson's next project, by the way. There will be bending. Uh, Arlo, you just gave me the idea in that, your idea for the first one, that I would really love to see a bending version of WWE. <laughs> <laughs> How amazing would that be? Well, did, didn't we get the, the boulder? But yeah, we sort of had that in there. But yeah. I'm talking about like a let's get the evolution of that. It's been 70 years. They, that was only earth bending. We need basically an entire sport of nothing but people up the boulders level of performance ship and all bending styles. Some are good guys, some are bad guys, storylines, everything. <laughs> I guess Tano was actually the heel of this thing, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, that's uh. Those are lovely predictions. I, I I feel like we need to do this every week now. I don't know why we didn't do this on Avatar. I, I From know. now on, I'm going to predict what happens <laughs> next week based okay. only on the episode titles. Awesome. It's taken us this long, but uh, finally a new feature that we can add to this <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> okay. So, uh, well, that was good. Thanks, guys, uh, and thank you everyone at home for joining us. As always, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at our website, theavatarreturns.com. Links will also be posted on our parent show site, gobbledygeekpodcast.com. You can also subscribe. Okay. Uh, Language. It's difficult. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes to make sure you never miss another exciting episode. And while you're there, be a hero and rate us or write us a review. Help spread the word. Uh, If you'd like to contact us, please send your correspondence. I'll never get over that. Never. (laughs) Good. Uh, Send your correspondence. Please address it to Monkey Yahtzee. 
to uh, tarpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can always find us on social media, facebook.com slash the avatar returns or twitter.com slash tarpodcast. And on Twitter, I am at haunt1013. Eric is at salon. That's S-A-A-L-O-N. And Arlo is at unplugged crazy. Uh, next week, three more chapters, as Arlo already predicted. 108, When Extremes Meet, 109, Out of the Past, and 110, Turning the Tides. So, uh, until then, remember, these ferrets aren't just bending the elements, they're bending my mind! Capitano Tarlock!